there and welcome to this week's Notes on Leadership with me, Carrie Fraze, and leadership coach Kristen Berry. We delve into the lives of some of Europe's finest leaders to find out what shaped them to become who they are today. We have a really fabulous guest in the studio with Kristen and I today. And Kristen, I know you are very much looking forward to chatting to her today. I am, Carrie. It's good to be here. I'm, I'm so excited to speak with Brandy. So let's tell you about Brandy M. Butler. She is the new deputy CEO at the Fund for Global Human Rights, where she oversees the fund's operations in pursuit of its mission to provide resources and support to frontline human rights activists and movements. Previously, she served as a division director at the Open Society Initiative for Europe, leading the Civil Liberties Division. She has served in leadership and grant-making positions, supporting human rights funding at the CNA, now Lords Foundation in Amsterdam, and Levi Strauss & Co. in Brussels. Earlier in her career, Brandy received the Yale Law School Bernstein Fellowship for International Human Rights to combat child trafficking in Gabon. She later practiced law at the Alliance for Children's Human Rights in Los Angeles and specialised in international justice as a programme officer at the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Brandy has published articles on structural racism, modern slavery, gender-based violence and supply chain transparency. She currently serves on the boards of Women Win and the Ariadna Funders Network. She's currently based in Barcelona, where she's been for the last three years. And Brandy's philosophy on life, it's better to be kind than to be right. Welcome, Brandy. How are you? I'm well. Thank you, Carrie. Thank you, Kristen. It's really an honour and a privilege to be here. We're so delighted to have you on the programme today. And I have to start with that quote. I love it. It's better to be kind than to be right. I feel this is something that's so needed in today's world. How is it that we seem to be existing in a world where kindness and being wrong also is seen as such a weakness? That's a great question. I mean, I rely on this quote a lot in my personal relationships um, because I like to be right. <laughs> we all secretly like to be right let's face it I like to be right a lot but yeah as you you've referenced in a, an increasingly polarized um chaotic and frankly scary <laughs> times um I found that uh kindness is just there's such a premium on it it's it's irreplaceable um and it has such an, a, a huge impact on, on everyday relationships. The other mantra uh, that, that I live by um, is that people will forget what you say. People will forget what you do, but they won't forget how you, how you make them feel. Um, I love that. Maya Angelou's wisdom. And um, yeah, I try to channel that into, into my life and my leadership style as well. How do you think we can go about trying to teach kindness and compassion? By modeling it, by mm. demonstrating it, um, by reciprocating it. Primarily, it's 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 less about what you say and, and more about how you act. I think words do matter, of course, but um, I think you know it's 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 the intangibles. You know, it's it's the body language, it's the warmth, it's the tone, um, the acts of kindness, acts mm. of service. Uh, I think that's how you teach kindness. Yeah, good role models. And we'll touch on that a bit later on, because I know you've had quite a few in your life. And we will talk about your incredible work within human rights as well. But first, I'd like to take you back in time uh, to your childhood, which was in Inglewood, California. Can you give us a snapshot of what life was like growing up there? Sure. I, I'm very happy to have grown up in, in Inglewood, California, Los Angeles County more broadly. 
Uh, it's, it's liberal, it's progressive, um, it's warm, it's sunny. And that, that has, as you know, living in Barcelona, it has an impact on, on the way people feel, um, on the energy, the way they interact with one another. Mm. So I grew up in a fairly relaxed and, and liberal environment, which, which really shaped um, my personality, my politics, my character. Um, and one thing I, I only recognized when I left Los Angeles was um, how diverse it is. I was exposed to such a wide variety of cultures and languages from a very young age, and I took it for granted, and it was only when living in other places, other cities in the U.S. that I realized that wasn't necessarily always the case, and, and I learned and saw and experienced how segregated a city could actually be. So um, I'm grateful. I mean, those are, of course, the, the wonderful sides of, of Los Angeles and growing up there. There's also... <laughs> you know, the impact of, of the film industry there and, and growing up um, adjacent to that and the, the superficiality and, you know, the types of values that that that, uh, that promotes. But um, for for natives, for people born in, in, and raised in Los Angeles, I think um, that that side of it is really kind of imported yeah. <laughs> and manufactured. And the L.A. I know is is, is genuine and grounded and, and activist and, um, yeah. So it's a wonderful place to grow up. Mm. So I, I grew up in Inglewood, um, which is an incorporated city in L.A., not too far from from the airport. And um, it's a predominantly African-American and Latinx um, community, very well depicted on uh, one of my favorite HBO series, which just wrapped, called Insecure. So if you want a slice of life in Inglewood, that's a great place to, to see it. Um, and there was a vibrancy, a dynamism there. Um, and I learned, um, I learned to be proud of, of my culture, proud of my heritage, proud of my community. And it's a place I, I always enjoy going back to. It sounds a really stimulating place to have grown up. And, and what about your parents? Tell us a bit about them, how they met and what your relationship was with them when you were growing up. Sure. My mom was born in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, uh, deep south. And my father was born in, in Cincinnati, Ohio, and their families uh, both migrated to uh, Los Angeles, specifically Compton, California, in the 60s. And so um, they lived in the same neighborhood and went to the same school. So they met as teenagers uh, and, and married uh, when my mom was 17. Wow. Um, and then they had my brother when, when my mom was 18. Um, I think back now, of having... A husband and a child when I was 17 and 18 I can't even imagine I suppose uh, you get them out the way early <laughs> some advantages aren't there? there definitely <laughs> are but the enormity of the responsibility yeah. um, they took on um, but they divorced soon thereafter and so I was primarily raised um, by my mom and my brother he, he's six and a half years older so he, he definitely had responsibility for looking after me whether he liked it or not but we were surrounded by family, my mom's siblings and, and their children, my cousins. I was fortunate to have had uh, uh, my mom's mom. My, my, we, we weren't allowed to call her grandma, <laughs> Medea or Janice, <laughs> around for, for the beginning of my life. And um, I'm very close to my father's mother as well and had uncles. Um, so th there was always family around, uh, which was a great support network, I think, for my mom. But... Um, yeah, she, she, she raised us on her own largely, and um, I look back and I, I think about, I can now appreciate what that must have been like for her, mm. uh, even with the support she had. 
and I'm just so impressed by what she was able to accomplish. We weren't rich by any stretch of the imagination, but we always had the basics. We always had the essentials, and she instilled in us uh, a value for education, um, and she modeled that uh, throughout my, my childhood um, and adolescence. I remember her always going back to school for, for different classes or this degree, so she, I think she has a lifelong uh, passion for learning that she passed down to, to me and my brother. Uh, when I was around 11, she remarried, so I lived with uh, with my mom, my stepdad, and my brother until my brother graduated and went off to college. And yeah, I have fond memories. I mean, my, my mom is old school, so she was strict and a disciplinarian, and, and that was hard for me. But Because um, you were a rebel or just because you just didn't like them told what to do? Yeah, I think I always had this innate frustration and fury with anything I felt was unjust. Right. <laughs> and when you're growing up and you don't understand the rules or the reasoning, um, a lot of things feel unjust. And I also, you know, I was, um, I was, I was a good kid. I was always very studious, uh, very focused. And so I think I just kind of resented the pressure because I didn't feel like I needed it. Yeah. I was self-motivated, but so that was, that was tough. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think she, she really molded and, and shaped us into, into the people we are today. So, so I'm grateful. Yeah, I'm sure Kristen will pick up on the fact that you saw things as unjust from a very young age, given what you're doing today. Um, and as you say, your mother was very keen to ensure that you and your brother had a good education. And that obviously paid off. You went to Harvard, which is fantastic. And was that always in your sights to go to Harvard? Not at all. Um, I didn't even know that was possible <laughs> until I met, um, when I was in high school, I, I did a summer program for kids who, who wanted to be engineers from underrepresented backgrounds. And there I met a young woman who was uh, a freshman at Harvard and she was from LA and she was black like me. And I thought, well, wow, if she can do it, maybe, maybe I can do it too. And so I applied and and yeah, I got in and, and we r remain great friends to this day. Her name is Mommy. She's a, a wonderful, uh, yeah, kind of big sister. Yeah, great role, role model by the yeah, sounds of it. Yeah, absolutely. And then I later followed her to, to law school. <laughs> wow. Yeah. She must have been getting paranoid by that stage. <laughs> <laughs> and I followed her ever since. I followed her to Ghana. <laughs> There's so many parallels in our life, but but she definitely was a an early source of, of inspiration and possibility for me. Fantastic. And, and describe a little bit about your life at Harvard. What do you most remember about your time there? I had an amazing time at Harvard. I really did. You know, in high school, I, well, this is a, a bit dated, but this is how it felt. If there's a spectrum between being popular and kind of being brainy or nerdy, I was probably more on the brainy, nerdy uh, side of the spectrum. And when I got to Harvard, um, I felt like I'd found my tribe. Mm. There were just so many smart, accomplished, ambitious people. And it, it really served to, to step up my game, step up my ambitions. Mm. And I fell in with a, a wonderful community. There was a wonderful uh, African-American community uh, at Harvard. And I joined uh, a gospel choir called Kumba. Fantastic. And, yeah, and, and that was a, a, like a family. So I felt um, well-supported. Uh, I'm still in touch with, with many uh, friends I made at Harvard, my college roommate. 
Jante and I are still um, very much uh, in contact and just formed lifelong bonds and relationships. And it really, it, it, it really enabled me to dream of possibilities that I, I didn't know existed, but that were ordinary or par for the course for, for many of my, my classmates who had come from very different backgrounds, who had come from wealth, who had come from privilege, who had gone to private schools. And yeah, that, that they, they kind of blazed the trail mm. for me. Um, I was also exposed to a lot of amazing people. I mean, we would have celebrities come all the time. Um, uh, greats like, um, I remember taking pictures with Will Smith. I, I, I wow. hugged Nelson Mandela. I mean, I, I could go on and on, but it, it was, yeah, it was really formative experience. And uh, I, had a, I had an amazing time there. Now, today's chat is about music as well. Um, has music been important to you? Is it important to you in your life? It is. It is. It's, 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 the, the, it's the soundtrack to mm. life, right? You forge so many um, memories and associations with music. And I, I'm constantly listening to music and exploring. And I'm grateful for uh, advances in technology that enable mm. algorithms that feed you new music that you may not otherwise have come across. So, yeah, music is a, is a very important part of my life. So tell us about your first song choice. My first song choice um, is called Madriguera. It's by the band La Peluse, um, which is my boyfriend's band, actually. And I chose it um, because I love it. Uh, and I think it demonstrates his immense talent. Um, and I first heard it on our first date. Actually, in 2017, we were both living and working in Amsterdam. And on our first date, he shared that... Um, he was a musician, played the guitar and sang, and he was in a band. And I was filled with dread, I have to say, because <laughs> I was so nervous. Um, what if I didn't like his music? How awkward would that be? And and that has definitely happened. Growing up in L.A., well, during my time, every other guy you met was an aspiring musician. <laughs> and they were not all talented. <laughs> so I was I was a little nervous, but when he, he played it for me, I was I was really... I was really impressed, and I later saw him perform in concert in, in Morcia. And he's a shy guy, but on stage, he, he's just this alter ego comes out. He's like this rock star. <laughs> so it was, uh, it's, it's really been a glimpse into a completely different side of him. Uh, and, I, and I love this song in particular because it is about... Um, well, Madriguera is like a, an animal's den or burrow. And so the song is, is really about this kind of universal need to have a place of refuge, a place of safety. And I think it's just a beautiful, beautiful song. That was Madriguera by La Peluse. And with us today is Brandy Butler, the new deputy CEO at the Fund for Global Human Rights. So, Brandy, we were talking about your time at Harvard, after which you went on to study law at Yale. And this, again, as you were saying, was following in the footsteps of your friend Mame. 
evidently a great role model, as we were saying. And I think often youngsters may look too far afield for role models these days. I'm thinking about the influence of social media specifically, when in fact, like your experience, they can be right on your doorstep. That's true. That's true. I have had so many role models, mentors, sponsors in my life. I would count Kristen among them, actually. Um, but I, yeah, when I, when I think about who, who has most influenced me, I, I think about, um, I think about my grandmother, mm-hmm. my, my father's mother with whom I'm very close and, um, and my mom as well. And, and what they have in common, I think what I, what I inherited from them is, um, a fearlessness and a fierceness. Mm-hmm. Um, they're also very forthright. Uh, so I've had to learn to kind of temper and shape that. <laughs> <laughs> they are not diplomatic. I'll say that. Um, my grandmother is also a lot of fun. Yeah. She loves to party, loves to dance. Um, I, I love when she tells stories. And my, my eldest uncle, Michael, tells stories about them going out and partying together. And, and I've had lots of um, adventures with my grandmother as well, traveling uh, here and there around the world. Um, she's 94 now, so wow. my, my biggest regret is that she, she has never been able to visit me here in, in Europe since I've lived here. But, um, yeah, she, she remains a source of inspiration. I would also say my brother, um, mm. who's just one of the kindest, most generous men on the planet. And he was, you know, growing up without a father, he was the closest male role model. So that made a big impression. He's a, he's a wonderful guy. And I would also cite my best friend. Her name is Tamika. We've been besties since 14, since we were 14. We met freshman year in high school. And she is one of the most resilient um, and funniest and and most generous people uh, I've ever met as well. So I would say those are my sources of inspiration. Mm. Um, And then in terms of people I don't know, um, I do love me some Oprah, I have to say. I love Oprah Winfrey. She is um, amazing. She is amazing. Um, so I would I would cite her as well, and just and and in particular, I think she I, I admire that she's such a seeker, always seeking. Um, I think spiritual depth, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and yeah, of course, living your best life, which which I feel like I'm doing. So. Mm-hmm. Great. Sounds like you've been surrounded by wonderful people all your life. And you've also lived in many different places. Let's just name them. Chicago, Gabon, Brussels, Ghana, Rwanda, South Africa, Amsterdam, and now Barcelona, of course. How has living in different countries and cultures taught you about society? And, and, and what about what about what you've learned on a personal level as well? Yeah, you know, I've, I've had this sense of wanderlust. Um, well, I was going to say my whole life, but actually it it started when I realized there was so much more to the world. Mm. I, uh, at Harvard, did a, a junior semester abroad um, when I went to Ghana and spent about three months there. Um, and coincidentally, my friend, Mame, uh, was spending a year abroad there. So at some point, we, we met up and I, I stayed with her for a while. And that experience just opened my eyes and I thought, I want to see it all. We have one life to live, and I want to—I don't want to have any regrets. And so, I took every opportunity I could to travel in school um, for work. I've been very fortunate to have had jobs throughout my career 
that um, for which travel was required. Mm. So I've been been yeah been been to so many countries and I've learned so much. I you know sometimes I I think back to when I first moved to Europe because people used to ask a lot you know what's the difference and what do you like what don't you like and to compare um, and it's been so long that I don't quite remember everything but I do appreciate experiencing a completely different philosophy to life, to work, experiencing different ways of setting up governance and society and thinking about um, different ways to be in relationship with one another uh, as community and as citizens. Um, And not that one or the other are better or wrong, but um, it it has just helped me have, I think, a more nuanced and full appreciation uh, of, of, of life and I feel at home here in Barcelona for the very first time in a long time. I feel like this is a place where I want to um, put down roots and, and, and settle for a while. And I think that has a lot to do with the parallels I, I feel between uh, Los Angeles and Barcelona. So Barcelona feels like home in a lot of ways. I think that the Mediterranean climate certainly has a lot to do with it. I think there's something special about cities that are located between mountains and, and sea. Mm. I think that's a very unique combination. And then, of course, the Spanish Spanish colonial influence in, in California. Um, so I grew up with that, not necessarily n- knowing it as such or understanding um, it as such. But when I got here, yeah, there's just, there's so many similarities. So it feels, um, feels like home, but yeah. away from home, but with lower cost of living and better quality of life. <laughs> It sounds like it's really ticked all the boxes for you, I think it has. So let's move on to your second song choice now. Tell us about this one. My second song choice is called Rise Up by the incomparable Andrew Day. Uh, It's just a gorgeous song that is about overcoming and enduring. And it is a song that I turn to in moments of uncertainty uh, or moments of challenge. Um, And it just reminds me of uh, that, that, that source of strength within. And um, it also reminds me of how much um, people in my life, my, my ancestors, my community have overcome as well. And it makes me think about those who have, have gone before me. Um, and if, if they could do it, I can do it. And it just, I don't know, it's kind of a beautiful fight song. <laughs> You're broken down and tired of living life on the merry-go-round. And that was Rise Up by Andra Day. That's given me goosebumps, Brandy. Truly beautiful <laughs> song. Uh, thank you for sharing that with us. Brandy Butler is with us today, the new deputy CEO at the Fund for Global Human Rights. Brandy, what is your definition of human rights? Human rights are at their essence about respect and dignity. They are rules or standards that are meant to govern how we relate to one another and how we live together in, in society our relationship uh, also with the state and the state's obligations with respect to individuals and to populations. At their heart, it's about how we respect the dignity of, of every human being. And where do you see the greatest threats 
to human rights currently, would you say? Oh, yeah, there's a lot. <laughs> well, like like many people, uh, I'm certainly concerned about um, about the impacts of uh, of climate change, about violence inflicted upon uh, indigenous and native populations in the pursuit of capitalistic extraction. Mm-hmm. Um, I am concerned about uh, infringement on our human rights during this pandemic, the pretext of the pandemic. I am I'm certainly uh, concerned about rising inequality uh, around the world and the consequences of all of that. Increasing conflict, increasing um, migration, um, and just the cyclical nature of it all. I'm also concerned about uh, increasing political polarization. It's it's there's not a day that goes by when we don't hear about some some conflict brewing or exploding or continuing uh, around the world. I'm concerned about uh, the most vulnerable uh, populations, um, the most oppressed. I mean, it it, it tends to be. Uh, the most vulnerable who who suffer the worst consequences of of these trends and phenomena that affect us all, including climate change and migration. Um, I have focused uh, quite a lot in my career uh, on on the rights of women and children. And in this new role at the Fund for Global Human Rights, um, I am excited to to learn about, uh, to work on, to support uh, the rights of, of... uh, a range of different communities, uh, including LGBT rights, migrant rights, the rights of indigenous populations, uh, women's rights, children's rights. So really the, the plethora of rights. And it's I'm, I'm learning a great deal, uh, doing a lot more uh, work in, in regions that I haven't worked in previously, in Latin America, for example. I want to just talk about your specific role. What do sure. you see as the, the greatest challenge then in this new role? I, I started in September... Um, and my background has primarily been programmatic, so meaning being involved in the actual projects, developing the relationships with um, grant partners on the ground, being more intimately involved in the substance of the work. Mm. And this role is management, right? So I'm, I'm uh, a step or two removed. Um, so that's, that is a challenge for me because... I'm I'm having to figure out where to derive energy and inspiration because it, I, I'm I don't get it from the places I used to. I used to get it from interact direct interactions with grant partners and site visits and and externally um, facing kind of interactions and really from from the field. And in this role, I am much more focused on the internal workings of the organization, trying to optimize operations, trying to make sure it's a well-run organization, trying to make sure um, uh, improve staff well-being, um, improving our systems um, and our ways of working. And so it's a different focus mm-hmm. and it's a different challenge and I'm enjoying that challenge, but it, it does mean figuring out where to draw the energy and the inspiration because it, it just isn't where I used to draw from. Where do you think it could come from? Well, the, I mean, the other thing to notice is I am still learning what I think the organization and I are still learning what it needs most from me uh, and, and which of my skill sets best serve 
the interests and the needs of the organization. So my role is shifting. We're also in a transition period. So things are shifting. So th- that's also a challenge trying to figure out where, um, where to lean in. Um, but I, I, to answer your question, my role is changing a bit and going forward, I will have more of a role on the fundraising side and the external representation. So that is new. I've never had to fundraise. I've been on boards where that was a part of um, my responsibility, but I've never uh, had to to raise. I mean, we're a, approximately twenty million dollar organization a year, and we raise that year to year. Wow, that's a big challenge. How do you do that? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm going to find out. <laughs> well, I think we we do that by um, by by doing the work by 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 providing value to to those who 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 care about human rights um and who have the resources um uh to to support uh activists campaigns and movements um m- the fund is able to resource and accompany human rights activists in places where other donors um whether it's governments or large private foundations or individuals like you and me can't access or don't know how. And so we really, um, because we have staff based and and rooted in the communities where we work, um, they really know the issues. They really have um, the trust and the connections and know where to uh, channel those resources. And so I think I really think of my my work and my career um, as, as my form of activism and it's about using private resources for for public or social or planetary good and so I think our our organization is uniquely placed to do that and so we we provide a a service in a lot of ways and so really I think I suspect and I'll find out um, you know part of the key to to fundraising is is really to demonstrate the impact uh, that we have that we and our partners have on the ground and to make the case make the compelling and urgent case um, for for supporting these activists in their work. And, and we really believe that those who are most proximate, those who experience, who have lived experience in the issues and the challenges we're trying to tackle, they are best place to forge the solutions. Mm-hmm. And so we don't dictate. We, we try to give them as much support as we can. It's flexible support. And we take their lead. It's the activists and movements themselves who decide where these resources are best placed and how they want to move forward. And so I think that that is that is unique, that mm-hmm. is special, and that that is why those who fund us uh, continue to fund us. And hopefully, we'll we'll find additional funders who who are um, willing to commit to long term uh, resourcing of of these movements. Really interesting, Brandy. My conversation with you is nearly over now, but before it is, just tell us about your third song choice before we pass the mic over to Kristen. Sure. My third song choice, um, and I have to thank Spotify's algorithm for this one, I recently discovered it is a Spanish duo called Fuel Fandango. And this song is called Today, and it's about, well, my interpretation of it is about burning out, kind of reaching a point where you feel nothing, you've hit rock bottom. And um, finding hope and, and energy by embracing 
the interconnectedness and interdependencies of 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 everything and especially opposing <clears throat> excuse me forces so she sings for example there's no life without death there's no love without pain um and this this approach or this philosophy is foundational in my own gratitude practice every night i try to meditate on at least three things that I'm grateful for. And sometimes it's, it's the, the negatives, right? Sometimes it's the, ch- the challenges because I, they, they really help me to appreciate the, the positives. So I rejoice in a rainy day because it, it's what defines a sunny day. And that's essentially what this song is about. today by Fuel Fandango and for my part I'd like to thank you Brandy for letting us into your world and for sharing some insights into the world of human rights. Kristen's going to take over the conversation now and Kristen, Brandy's someone who can clearly set an example to others as we've been talking about in our conversation and role models therefore are very clearly important in leaders journey. Absolutely. I'm so excited to to sort of dig in around all these experiences that you've had, Brandy, and um, ask you a little bit more about your leadership and what you've learned and and just tie it together a little bit. And before we go any further, I do have to say, you met Will Smith? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I have a photo. I'll show it to you. I'm listening to his audio book. Oh, is it good? <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting. Actually, it really is. <laughs> yeah, I met, uh, so. I have a photo with Will and his wife, Jada. And it's funny, I, every time I go to the U.S., someone will inevitably say to me that I look like his wife, Jada Smith, Jada Pinkett Smith. <laughs> well, I don't think it's that, true, That's a, but it's a compliment because uh-huh. she's beautiful. <laughs> she is beautiful and so are you. So, <laughs> so with that... <laughs> I guess my first question, apart from whether you'd met Will Smith, was what, was what it was like for you to reflect on your life uh, in preparation for this interview and in light you know, of leadership, of your leadership? It was a lot of fun. Um, you ask very, <laughs> very good questions. And I had to, I had to really sit and, and think and talk to talk to talk to some people like you know I thought I knew you know my mom's story and then I thought well let me verify some memories <laughs> oh and that was fun okay. yeah that was fun asking her about um you know what what it was like you know to move at the age of seven from Mississippi to California and um just asking about her experiences she told me yeah stories I hadn't heard she she mentioned um her her she was seven and and they were taking the train I think, and she mentioned uh, being asked to get out of her seat because of course this was the sixties uh, and and uh, an older white gentleman came up to her and right. demanded that she vacate the seat and she she initially refused being seven she didn't know what these ridiculous norms were um, or or she knew and and, and didn't think they were right. And, uh, yeah, she talks about her mom kind of snatching her up, uh, because they did not want, want that, that drama or those problems. 
uh, in this journey. But so that was a story I hadn't hadn't heard. And yeah, it, it was great. It was nice to excavate memories and, and to hear new stories and, and to reflect on the influences um, and the impact that, that various experiences and people have had on my life. So thank you for the opportunity. Oh, absolutely. And and so you say to, to reflect on and, and, and the impact they've had on your life. Is there any concrete event that you that you went through? Any story like that that you heard in, in, in your as you reflected that that really has influenced your work path and your leadership the most? Absolutely. And it relates to, to the job I have now. I when I graduated from law school I knew that I wanted to pursue a career in human rights. I had done a few uh, summer internships. I worked at a rape crisis center in in Cape Town, South Africa. I volunteered. I was in a a law clinic uh, helping um, low-income families in in New Haven. I had 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 a number of different experiences that had exposed me to to human rights. I I did a thesis on the, the human rights implications of the HIV AIDS crisis in South Africa. My favorite class in law school was the International Human Rights Clinic. It was probably the only one of the few classes I actually enjoyed in law school besides um, uh, a, a seminar on death penalty, the death penalty. So I, I knew that there was something drawing me uh, to human rights. And um, I had a really hard time breaking into the fields. And I, I have a lot of theories as to why, but you know, entry-level jobs just really didn't didn't pay much um, or enough to allow me to live with a modicum of dignity given the student loan debt I had accumulated. And so I had a really tough time. So I ended up working for an entertainment law firm in L.A. Uh, my first year out of law school, but I, I was still applying for jobs and and not having much success until I met um, my the woman who is now my boss, um, Regan Ralph, and, and a founding board member of the Fund for Global Human Rights, which was this new endeavor to to resource grassroots human rights activists and movements. And I was really impressed by the mission of the organization and, and what they were attempting to do. And I applied for a position, and I did not get it. And I was crushed. I was devastated. And I asked for feedback, and they were one of the few organizations that actually took the time to give me feedback. Mm-hmm. And Regan encouraged me to get more experience working abroad, working uh, in partnership with communities on human rights issues, to uh, improve my language skills um, as well, because they really needed someone who could hit the ground running. And that changed everything for me. I decided then and there I was never going to miss out on an opportunity for such a fantastic job for those reasons. Like those were things now that I knew they might be holding me back. Those were things I could fix. And so I quit my job at at the law firm. They thought I was crazy. And I got a job teaching at an international school in Libreville, Gabon. Uh, And so I moved to Gabon and my idea was that I could volunteer with organizations. I could study uh, and learn French by immersion while I was there. And, and that's what I did. And, and then I was fortunate enough to receive a fellowship from uh, my law school to uh, spend a, a year volunteering. After I finished teaching, I volunteered with UNICEF, uh, the United Nations Children's Fund in Gabon. 
under this fellowship. And so I spent two years in Gabon working on human rights issues, learning and speaking French. And then when I came back to the U.S., um, it, uh, that experience really opened doors for me. I was still trying to figure out what I wanted to do, but um, I, I had access to, to many more opportunities than, than I'd had before. And I fell in love with, uh, with living overseas as well. So that, that advice, that rejection, uh, that, that really, I think, changed the, the trajectory of my personal and professional life. And so coming back to the organization as the deputy CEO really feels like coming full circle. Wonderful. That's a great story, actually. Really great. And and I pick up on so many things that we talk about, themes of leadership, right? One is the importance of getting feedback and giving feedback, right? The fact that it allows us to really learn a lot about ourselves if we take the time to really hear what people can say to us. And if people take the time um, the other, to give it. As and well. if people take the time and as leadership. And, and so does that mean now as a leader, do you really take that into account and, and make sure that you give helpful feedback to people? I certainly try. And I also, you do. yeah, it, it's, it's a skill <laughs> giving, as you know, it is, it is. Yes. I, I, I definitely try um, because I feel like it's an investment in, in the person mm-hmm. an investment in, in their success. And, and obviously I know personally um, what a big difference feedback can make. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also, mentoring. I, I really, that, I mean, obviously I give feedback in, in the context of, um, supervisory relationships, but, but I, it's also, I think incredibly important, uh, with respect to taking people under your wing, mentoring, supporting, and giving, giving specific and actionable feedback that that's, that's the key. Great. So I've had some I was going generic... to ask you if you had any tips and it sounds like specific and actionable. Great. Specific and actionable. And then, and also I, I try to give people feedback also about how they're showing up, how they're presenting, because I have valued that in my career. You, you may, you may have no idea the impression you're, you're giving off by your, your facial expressions, your, your gestures or, you know, just things that, that you may not be able to perceive yourself but there's also, you give energy as well. And so Absolutely. I think, I think those are aspects of, of feedback that, that are also very important and, and overlooked. And Brandy, what you're saying about making an impact becomes all the more important to understand when you work in a multicultural or international setting, wouldn't you say? Yes. Then, then it becomes really complicated. <laughs> because um, <laughs> they're definitely very different interpretations. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's one of the things I've appreciated um, about having lived and worked in so many different settings and with people from so many different backgrounds. Uh, it's just really learning uh, some of the, the cultural nuances and differences and, and, and really learning to reserve judgment uh, until you, you understand the context and, and where the person is coming from. So that d- definitely makes it... Uh, makes it a, a bit more complex, but I have found that, um, developing that kind of intercultural, um, proficiency or fluency is, is absolutely critical, uh, for those, particularly for those who, who are seeking international careers. And that's the kind of stuff that, that I think you learn by exposure. And so putting yourself right. in situations 
with um, a, a variety of different types of people in different types of places and, and situations is, is really how I've been able to learn and absorb it. And, and that's something that just comes with time and, and, and being open-minded. And I'm going to make a leap here, if you'll allow me, but um, it also means that you probably have to make yourself a little vulnerable. Absolutely. Uh, and that's something that you have worked with me a lot on. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Kristen was my coach. Um, I think we started working together right when the pandemic hit. Uh, and that was a very we difficult did. period on a lot of dimensions, <laughs> personally, professionally, um, and with all that was going on in the world. And um, vulnerability is not something that comes naturally to me. And I've been reflecting a lot on why that is. And it, I, I don't know, it may not come naturally to to a lot of people, but I come from a background. I was raised by very strong, as I mentioned earlier, strong, fierce, forthright, independent women. And so vulnerability was not necessarily something that was modeled or encouraged. And I've okay. had to relearn <laughs> that and um, work a lot on being comfortable um, with not knowing and admitting that I don't know and, and, and changing my conception of leadership. I, I thought leaders showed up with answers and knowledge and solutions. Um, and that's actually not the case. <laughs> it is changing, isn't it? And, and do you have any examples that you'd be willing to share anything a little concrete for people? Because I always think that these are, they're very inspirational stories to hear, right? And what you're admitting is that you had, you did change your concept. You, 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 been working on this concept of vulnerability. Do you have any examples where you were able to become more vulnerable with the team or you weren't and it went poorly either way or you did and it went well? The first thought that comes to mind is summer 2020 when um, there were uh, the uprisings uh, around the world uh, against racial injustice um, in the aftermath of, of uh, the murder of George Floyd. And I, I mean, above all, I'm human, uh, and I'm African American <laughs> and right. that had a very profound impact on me. It was like ripping off scars because I think being African American and growing up and, and being aware of my history, you know, what happened to George Floyd was not, um, unfortunately not, not unique. It was certainly not not the first time that something like that had been recorded, had been uh, diffused for for the country to see. But, you know, I think that the timing of it um, was, was particular. And so it was impossible for me to show up at work and not be vulnerable because it, it the events, the pandemic, and, and that summer just really stripped me bare. And so... Yeah, it, it was really impossible to not cry at work. <laughs> I'm about to cry now. It, it was really impossible mm. to pretend to be okay. It was not possible to hold in my anger, my frustration. And, and I think I showed up more authentically in that way. And, I mean, that year, of course, I... I I, I developed deeper levels of empathy because everyone was struggling okay. and, and we all continue to struggle, right? We were faced with an existential mm -hmm. threat and, and uncertainty um, and chaos. 
um, and anger and hatred and fear. And so I think being vulnerable, allowing myself to be vulnerable, because I could have taken time off from work and just been vulnerable on my couch. Um, <laughs> but but showing up and, and having honest conversations with, with my team and creating spaces for us to be vulnerable with one another, I think really made a significant difference in terms of, I think, just being able to, to be our authentic selves, to trust one another. Uh, and I think it made me more human and uh, probably more relatable, right? Because Absolutely. I, I, I've also, ha- I've gotten feedback that, you know, sometimes I, 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 or a standard is set that is so high that people sometimes feel maybe intimidated by it or, or yeah, I, I guess intimidated is probably the best way. And so I think without even knowing it, I, I was sometimes projecting uh, an impression of um, complete confidence and competence in that, you know, that's not, that's not the case. Right. And so I think or maybe it's also the case. Maybe they're, they're both the case, right? You are competent. You are confident. As usual, uh, Kristen's pointing out nuances and complexity. Yes, both can be. <laughs> yes, you're right. Um, both and. Both and. But that not being the totality of who I am as a leader, right? So it's not just it's not just competent and confident. It's also empathetic and sometimes unsure and, and learning. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, since then, I, I try to approach, I think, leadership a little bit differently and I try to be more explicit that uh, about the process so so whereas before I I would feel like a leader should show up with the answer now I I, I'm more comfortable expressing kind of the steps in between the stages in between where I'm figuring it out here are the steps I'm taking to I don't know the answer but here's what I'm trying to do to get there and I need your input I need your knowledge I need your expertise to for us to get there and so I think it's just a different approach um, and a different expectation of myself, um, which has, I struggle with perfectionism and uh, (laughs) understanding that it is as important to demonstrate and bring people along in the process of problem solving um, and making visible, the invisible work Mm -hmm. is really key. That's such a beautiful that's probably the best you know personal explanation i've had of that process that just in terms of the gifts that emotions can give us you know whether it's allowing for our energy to be harnessed out of anger our empathy to be to be developed through sadness um that was that through your experience i can see that how you were able to use the channel the gifts from your your emotions by not hiding them but rather being with them and how you were allowed, allowed others to connect with you by showing them as well. Um, and you allow them to develop and show up and grow when you ask them for, for their ideas and their support. So you, I mean, there's so much to unpack in, in your, in your story there. Thank you. Thank you. So, so I've heard, as I've heard you talking, um, I've heard such a long list of, of, your long list of values, things that are really important to you from gratitude, friendships, sense of home, learning, kindness, respect, ambition, travel, family, fun, 
inner strength community. And then, of course, you mentioned justice, which is clearly, you know, a core value of yours. Um, can you tell us anything about your purpose, your, your sort of greater, deeper purpose that drives you and how it maybe includes or is driven by some of these values? When I think about my deeper sense of purpose, I always think about love, really. I used to think that was corny, but now <laughs> I'm older and wiser mm. and realize <laughs> I now realize that it's everything. So I try to, I, I, I don't know, I, I guess I think of myself as a vessel, a physical manifestation of, of um, I, I'm not very religious, but I do believe in, in God or a higher power, a universal power. And so I think of myself as a physical manifestation uh, of that higher power. I think of all of us that way. And um, I think of my deeper purpose as being a conduit for love. And, and that can mean a lot of different things. But, but when I think about my ultimate purpose, that, that's, that's, I guess, the best way I would articulate it. It's very connected with the, the conversation Carrie and I had about um, my life mantra uh, and I, and I mm -hmm. was sharing about people will remember how you made them feel. And so I, I try to sh show up and, and harness my energy and express myself um, in, in ways that demonstrate a deep sense of care and, uh, and love. And, and that's hard, um, but I always try to remember that when I particularly encounter difficult situations or difficult conversations uh, to try to deliver um, my message uh, in a way that really uh, gives expression to my intent, um, which, which is about, and I, I think human rights, anyone who yeah. devotes themselves of course. Um, and, and, yeah. and their lives, it, it is about fundamentally love, love for people, okay. love for nature, love for, for all that, the universe, I think, has, has gifted us in, in feeling a deep and profound sense of responsibility to care for all of these 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 assets and these resources, um, ourselves included. So I don't know if that makes much sense, but for me, it's all interrelated. No, it absolutely does. And what I'm thinking as I'm listening to you is that you're, these come through in, in listening to you. They come through. If you could give a sort of last question before I'm going to ask you to say something about your last song. Uh, if you could give some advice to your listeners who are most interested in leadership, either in general or even specifically in, in humanitarian work, what, what advice might you give? I guess I would, and, and it's interesting you ask that because um, people often ask for it, but I, I get requests for advice mostly from people who maybe have similar backgrounds, maybe started out in corporate, but are looking for a deeper sense of purpose and want to transition to the nonprofit sector. And the advice I, I usually give is one to kind of let go of any preconceived notions of how your life or your career are supposed to go and to really take the time to figure out what it is that lights that fire in you and to find where your special sauce, your special brand of, of skills, your gifts 
add the most value and, and where hopefully that's the place where you also draw the most value. So finding that kind of sweet spot and not being afraid to sacrifice. I think, you know, it is a big leap to make that transition, uh, to pivot into a new field or career. Um, it takes vulnerability (laughs) certainly. And I, and I, I, I would always advise people to, to go there and, and to enjoy the ride, enjoy the process. Thank you. Great, great advice. Thank you. Could you tell us about your last song? And, and before you do, I'll just say thank you so much for being with us today and for sharing your life and your music with us. Thank you. It's been fun. I really appreciate it. Good. My last song I agree. is um, Center Man by Nina Simone. It is my favorite song of all time. And it is, I chose this song because her art, her activism, her life are, are boundless sources of inspiration for me. This is the first song I'd ever heard by Nina Simone. Uh, and I was just, and I remain struck by the audacity of it. Uh, her voice, her style, her politics, um, the fusion of genres. Uh, and the, the version that I originally heard was 10 minutes. And it was 10 minutes in which I am always riveted. Um, I think we're going to play a shorter version of that, but yeah, this, this cover of the song just is transmits so much uh, and it feels like deliverance. So um, that is why I chose to close out on this song. 